Welcome to the latest episode of the Noid Knowledge Podcast. I'm Meg LaRue, your podcast co-host and group editorial director of Cannabis Science and Technology and Cannabis Patient Care Magazines, as well as the content director for the Cannabis Science Conferences. And I'm Evan Friedman, Vice President of Scientific Cell Company and your other host here at the Noid Knowledge Podcast. This month, we are excited to be joined by Dr. Ian Oswald. Dr. Oswald is currently a principal research scientist at Abstracts Tech, Inc., a cannabis research and development company located in Southern California. His research focuses on understanding the complex nature of volatile secondary metabolites in cannabis, which includes the discovery of novel volatile sulfur compounds in cannabis. Dr. Oswald, or as some lovingly call him, Dr. Dank, was awarded the prestigious El Soli Award in Cannabis Chemistry Research for the discovery of a new class of volatile sulfur compounds responsible for the characteristic gassy, skunky aroma produced by cannabis. Last month, Ian and his team published again, this time highlighting their discovery of an additional range of cannabis sulfur compounds that contribute to the tropical notes in cannabis aromas. Today, we'll be discussing Ian's background, various research projects, knowledge and expertise in volatile secondary metabolites, and more. Let's jump right in and expand our NOID knowledge. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ian. Yeah, thanks, guys, for having me. Excited to discuss this research. So we like to start our episodes with some background for the listeners. Can you share your cannabis origin story? How did you get to where you are now? And did you think this was where your career would lead you? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm, I went to university to study chemistry, uh, at which point I was doing undergraduate research in organic chemistry and inorganic chemistry, which I really enjoyed. Um, from there, I did a PhD in solid state chemistry, which is kind of the cousin to solid state physics, just more materials oriented. Uh, so totally not related to cannabis yet. Um, I then went to do a postdoc at uh, Colorado State University, where I was working on inorganic organic hybrid perovskites, which are these next generation solar cell materials. Um, and while I was there, um, you know, Cal Colorado is well known for its you know cannabis culture. Um, I was able to kind of dabble uh, while I was there. And my buddy TJ, who is my boss here at uh, Abstracts Tech, gave me a call in 20, 2019 uh, and mentioned that there was a position open at Abstracts for basically uh, leading the R&D team on investigating cannabis kind of in an area that's been understudied. Uh, and so it sounded really interesting. And as a chemist, because cannabis has been so highly regulated, it was a really interesting um, you know, topic because it's it, it's been so understudied from that regard. So I saw it as kind of a really unique opportunity to do something that other people have not been able to. So I told TJ, sure, this sounds like a lot of fun. Um, I like the idea of working at a startup as well. The fast paced nature, I think, kind of suits my my uh, creative thinking and, and way of kind of going about things. So I moved out to California in 2019 um, and we got started looking into cannabis. Uh, when, when I arrived, we you know invested in some instrumentation and, you know, it's kind of you know, it's, it's gone, it's gone a lot further, I feel, than we kind of thought it would when we started. Uh, but it's all in good ways. I think that we've really helped kind of expand the knowledge of, you know, the general, the general public educating them as well as ourselves. And the access to, to dank weed is just a perk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is by far one of the, uh, you know, biggest benefits here being in California. So, Abstracts is located in Southern California specifically. So there's a lot of really good 
uh, cannabis that's grown here. Um, and so we have two facilities. We have a facility that does cannabis extraction formulation. So we're actually taking uh, cannabis and extracting it with butane. So we're creating butane hash oil type products. Uh, and then our other side of the, the uh, company is looking at uh, the flavor and fragrance use for the chemistry that we're discovering. So I think what makes kind of abstracts unique is the fact that we have these two kind of separate entities where we can extract cannabis, analyze cannabis, and then we can also take that knowledge and go into a lab and see how do these pieces we discover fit together? How are they important? How are they not important? Um, and so that's really kind of the backbone that's led us to kind of be able to make some of these discoveries, whether it's the prenylated VSEs for the gassy skunky aromas or, you know, the more recent research on the other more diverse aromas that cannabis makes. So, yes, Evan, having uh, access to really good products, um, both within our lab and just the dispensaries we can go procure and run on the instrument, you know, that's a, I, I think that's a huge benefit for us. Yeah, I I think, you know, you're, you're coming from a really interesting point. Uh putting putting together the the compounds that you think make up the 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 aromatic and flavor profile of a flower and finding that it's coming up short you got to there must be something missing right uh, is is that kind of the the path that got you down here looking at these sulfur compounds yeah. So when we started, that was actually one of the key kind of goals, you know, KPIs, right? Can we can we figure out what this uh, aroma is, what the chemistry is behind it? Because before I started, Abstracts was doing a little bit of flavor chemistry, uh, you know, for for different sort of products, you know, vape pens or edibles, that sort of thing. Um, but all of the products were missing that aroma specifically, you know, the the one that so many people really enjoy, which is that gassy, gassy, skunky aroma of really kind of an indicator of what people would consider like, you know, highly potent cannabis. Um, and so that was the kind of the first goal of ours. And we actually were able to work out that chemistry fairly quickly with our instrumentation. It was within the first six months that we identified uh, the first major compound that is probably the most important, um, not the only one, but definitely probably one of the more important ones, which is prenylthiol. Uh, that compound is very small. It is very volatile. Uh, it has a much higher vapor pressure than terpene. So when, when when you wonder like, you know, why can you smell the skunky smell a mile away, but not necessarily the terpene smell? Well, that's the reason is you have these compounds that are very, very volatile uh, due to their high vapor pressures, as well as the fact that, you know, the human nose is just tuned to detect uh, sulfur so well. And so um, once we kind of identified that compound, we realized, hey, there's actually quite a few other compounds that uh or at least peaks in the data that sort of resemble that one as well but are you know chemically different and so over time we were able to kind of piece together what those were um some of these are completely new compounds or were in 2021 when we reported them uh in nature we hadn't seen diprenyl sulfide or diprenyl disulfide uh before in in literature or any sort of patents or anything like that so i think that was pretty cool that you know here we are just talking about cannabis and while some of this has been kind of known, or at least, you know, it's existed in nature elsewhere, some of this stuff has not been reported previously. And I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So your recent paper in ACS Omega, minor non-terpenoid volatile compounds drive the aroma differences of exotic cannabis. 
has made a lot of noise in the cannabis industry regarding the overinflated importance on terpenes. Can you share some of the findings from your paper, sort of explain uh, what what what's going on there? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I'll just go ahead and cut you off. <laughs> no, <laughs> and I'll it's get perfect. to the, and their Keep importance. <laughs> um, so yeah, so when when people think of you know over the last few years, and and you know as, as we publish and other people publish more information about the volatiles and can and, and and cannabis, you know, I think that we're going to realize terpenes, like you said, are not quite as important as we think. So, the, you know, the first question is, why, why have we been focused so much on terpenes? So the reason that is, is because they're by far the most dominant compounds as far as their concentration in cannabis. So from a testing standpoint, they're much easier to work with. They're much easier to detect, identify, and then quantify. And so, you know, that's the reason why a lot of testing labs offer this as a service, because then people can put that terpene concentration, or at least for the top three or five, or what, what have you, on uh, packaging, that sort of thing. Um, but the problem is, is that, you know, if, if first off, if you just look at terpenes and their aroma characteristics, you, you'll notice that none of them really have the aroma characteristics of many of the aroma descriptors that a lot of breeders will give to a certain variety. Um, so for instance, you know, OG Kush, for example, for our 2021 paper, people would say that, you know, that's super uh, earthy, woody, you know, dank, uh, gassy, and skunky, right? Well, the last two terms, terpenes don't have that skunky aroma at all. And so, you know, that was the good indication back then that, you know, there's got to be something else that's kind of going on. Um, but, the, and so that, that's one of the main problems is that, you know, we have all these terpenes that people are looking at, but they never really seem to correlate with the unique aromatic characteristics of many of these more modern varieties, you know, this quote unquote exotic cannabis. Um, and so, you know, knowing that as well as just using our knowledge of chemistry, uh, that other compounds classes typically might have a certain characteristic aroma. So for instance, esters will often have, you know, fr more fruity aromas or, you know, a different aroma palette than terpenes do in general. Um, and then thiols and volatile sulfur compounds will often have a certain kind of characteristic aroma as well. And obviously there's nuance there depending on what the structure is, but you know, you can, these things are quite different from terpenes themselves. And so when we were doing our, our um, experiments, uh, what, what we're seeing is basically what everybody else saw in the sense that yes, terpenes are by far the most dominant compound, you know, in our quantification, we, we were able to do, you know, 60 plus flavorants plus the standard kind of 40 um, dominant terpenes that are found in cannabis. And oftentimes those 40 terpenes will account for upwards of 95 to 98% of that volatile fraction. So that leaves only about 2% at most to be uh, for the remaining compounds, those flavorants. Um, and so when we when you really dig into the data and you start cranking up the, the contrast, and, and that's another thing that you know, we need to remember is that you know, your, your methods are gonna dictate what you can see. If your methods are tuned just to kind of detect the major chirpings and it's optimized for that, like many testing labs, that's all you're going to see. But if you're able to kind of be more ex exploratory, like we are, you know, we're an R&D lab, we're able to basically lower that baseline or raise the peaks up a ton so that these tiny peaks that are buried in the noise can now be visible um, and, and we can actually measure them, identify them, and then quantify them. And so that's what we were looking at is that there's these bunch of these tiny little peaks and a bunch of these different samples 
uh, and you know their chemical functionality ranges you know significantly, and it's more than what we were kind of expecting as well. You know, you do have esters like people suspected. Um, you have alcohols, aldehydes. Uh, you have amines in there. You have heterocyclic compounds. There are these you know volatile sulfur compounds with different functionality. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot going on in the detail that what we found really kind of is what steers the unique aromatic characteristics of many of these varieties more so than the terpenes themselves. And so it was really kind of when we detected all these compounds and saw them and then coupling that to sensory studies, which is basically where we put together a panel of users to do blind um, smell tests in, in essence, to say, what 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 is the aromatic character of this product? And then we look at trends between the chemical data and the sensory data. We we're able to see that really terpenes weren't dictating a ton of the aroma there. It was much more these sort of flavorants, especially for the really, really sweet stuff or the really, really savory stuff like, you know, GMO or 710 chem. Um, and so that's kind of the general methodology that we used and, you know, kind of it, it's kind of a paradigm shift, I feel, because like I said, everybody's been talking about terpenes for so long now, it's at least the last decade or so. Um, and people have definitely suspected about these other flavorants, you know, you would oftentimes in social media or, uh, you know, popular science type articles, educational pieces, people would write revolving around the aroma of cannabis, people would, you know, throw out these kind of broad terms like esters, alcohols, thiols. And, you know, they're not wrong, but you know, nobody had the detailed information about, well, which esters, which alcohols, which VSCs, which heterocycles. Nobody was asking what heterocycles are in cannabis. You know, that was totally unexpected. Um, but, you know, so we were able to provide that actual detail, couple it to the sensory studies, and then, you know, also do the quantification. We had a 60 plus compound standard that we produced in-house uh, to do the quantification, which, you know, not a lot of people are going to do that. So, Shout out to our team at Abstracts, the R&D team, Twinkle and Manny, um, Marcos, for helping to work on that, because that that's a lot of work right there to put all that together. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. Um, so you used a two-dimensional gas chromatography uh, with an additional sulfur detector in this method, I mean, in this research. Um, how practical is that for like an everyday lab to test products, or is that even necessary? And do you foresee a 1D method in the future? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's the big question, right? It's like, okay, great. We discovered all this stuff. We know of all the, this new chemistry. So from just a general understanding of the aroma of cannabis and how all the stuff kind of fits together, um, that's great, but it would be so much more useful from a practical application standpoint, if a testing lab, like you're suggesting could potentially test for these sort of things. Um, and so the instrumentation is not cheap that we're using, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars and that is not going to be really feasible for a testing lab where margins are already pretty thin. Uh, you know, the testing lab industry right now is going through a lot of interesting kind of changes, I think, due to various reasons. Um, but, you know, so, so right, right now, I don't, that would definitely not be on the table. So in that respect, you know, we, we recognize this kind of early on that, hey, you know, if we could kind of help the testing labs by developing a method, as well as maybe kind of figure out, can we get some of this more specialized equipment? So we do use the sulfur chemiluminescence detector specifically for looking at these very, very important sulfur compounds, um, because essentially what that detector does is only show you peaks if a compound contains sulfur. 
So it simplifies a data set that might have 300 peaks or so down to about, you know, 10 to 20, maybe 30. And so it's much easier to go through the data at that point than quantify off the SCD. Um, yeah. And that, that was my question. Can, can you quantify using the SCD or is it just a detector? You can, you can quantify, you can detect, you can't, you can't do identification. That's why you do need the mass spec. But again, because, because we've already discovered these compounds and we know where they elute, you know, their chrom chromatographic characteristics, essentially, we've done that heavy lifting for them. So um, with the SCD, you can definitely quantify. It has equimolar response to sulfur, meaning that basically for every sulfur atom that gets to the detector, you get, you know, X amount of intensity. And so it has a really wide dynamic range. It's actually really, it's a great detector for this sort of work. Um, but you know, it, that, that would be a barrier to entry, of course, for, for a testing lab. But I, I do think that, you know, once people kind of realize the importance of these sulfur compounds in particular, um, because it spans two of the most important, I would argue, um, aromas in cannabis. I would argue the most important aroma in cannabis, which is the gassy skunky aroma. That's prenylthiol related compounds. And then it also would be able to detect these tropical volatile sulfur compounds that we're going to be referring to as Tropicana sulfur compounds which are these three mercaptohexyl uh, related species. And these things are the uh, really important compounds that drive the tangy or guava or papaya, any of those tropical sort of notes is a permutation of those compounds in there and kind of how, how their amounts or if they're present or not will determine kind of what flavor of tropical nuance do you get. So that's, that's two of some of the most popular aromas right there. So I, I do think there's good precedence for even though, you know, a testing lab would have to purchase this, um, you know, th there would be good reason to, right? You'd be giving them much more useful information than say, uh, you know, just terpene testing on, on the label. Um, but going back to, you know, the, you know, can we help bring this information to a testing lab? So something we recognized early that it would be cool if we could do that. And so we actually have invested in a 1D system specifically for developing those methodologies. So we now have uh, two 2D GC systems and then a single 1D GC, typical GC you would find in a testing lab. And so because we have all this information on the 2D side and we kind of understand how that works, it's pretty easy for us to kind of go to the 1D and know where to expect things might pop up in the chromatogram. And so Twinkle's been heading that. She's done a great job. Uh, kind of developing that methodology. And so it turns out that if you play with the parameters and, you know, you kind of dial in the sample prep and all the steps that go into making a method, you can actually resolve quite a few of these compounds that people care about that are, you know, not chirpings, whether they're VSCs or some of the key esters. Um, the, the ones we have not been able to see right now, unfortunately, but I think we'll be able to resolve with time, just a bit more method editing, would be these heterocycles, which are really important for the chem savory aromism. And I think there's games we can play there from a method, method standpoint to do that. Um, but the point being is that I actually, I'm very, very hopeful that we will be able to develop a method, um, potentially publish on it, and basically show the testing labs, hey, we have a method that we validate internally and you know we would plan to work with a partner in the industry to essentially you know do this as a pilot program how does this work for you guys are there any kind of changes that we want to do um on the method side or you know the workflow side to streamline it 
Um, but but I feel pretty good about it, honestly. Uh, I think that that it, it'll it'll take more time because you have to use a longer experiment than they would probably typically be doing because you need to kind of allow greater separation of all of these different analytes that you care about. Um, so, you know, that's obviously, you know, that's an expense right there is it might be 60 minutes versus 20 minutes that they're doing for a typical terpene test. But again, I think that the information that you're able to provide people is so much more useful than the terpene test that we can still get terpene data anyway. Now you're just getting terpenes plus VSCs, some of the key esters, et cetera. So um, that's kind of an ongoing project of ours. And I'm, I'm, I'm really hopeful that it'll, it'll work out. And even if we can only capture 80% of the analytes that we discuss in this paper we published, um, I think as long as we can capture some of the most important ones, then, you know, it, it, it would kind of pay for itself. Nice. I, so I, I, I've got my next question queued up here, but I've got to ask you uh, about these heterocycles a little bit more. So like the, there are, they're sulfur compounds. Um, the, the, the heterocycles are not They're They're actually nitrogen containing compounds. Okay. Okay. So you'd need a different detector as well. Yeah. And so that, I mean, that's the, you know, the downside there is that those compounds, again, they contain carbon, hydrogen, and then nitrogen. Um, and they actually do, Agilent does produce actually a nitrogen specific detector, a, a nitrogen chemiluminescence detector, an NCD. Um, and, you know, that's something internally we've discussed that if we ever got a third <laughs> GC cross GC, we might <laughs> want to look into because, you know, the truth is things that contain nitrogen are kind of similar oftentimes to sulfur where the human nose is very sensitive to that. And so, you know, we found scatol, which is trends very strongly with the savory uh, chem-like varieties. And then we found indol, which is actually a little bit, it's pretty ubiquitous across cannabis. And so kind of gives it some general funk. I think it's when people talk about funk, it's probably a little bit of indol in there. Um, but I, I actually suspect there could be more things in cannabis, but we just haven't been able to find them yet. A, because of the low concentration, and then, you know, if you don't know something's there, it's hard to look for it, right? <laughs> so um, the good thing is we know where these two are now, so it's easier to develop the 1D methodology. Um, and so that's why I was mentioning, Evan, that uh, I do think that we can probably optimize some of our parameters, whether it's like oven ramp rates or, you know, using um, ion extraction techniques in the method to, you know, uh, to extract out those ions unique to scatol or indol. Mm. I think there's a little a little bit of hope there. Uh, but I'll just mention that, you know, one of the downsides to scatol in particular, because it's such an important compound for that chem savory aroma, uh, is that chromatographically, at least on the columns that we're using on our 1D system, they elute pretty very close to the sesquiterpenoid region, which if, you, if you've ever looked at a chromatogram off a, a, a GC, that region is a total mess. It's just there's so much stuff going on over there much more so in the monoterpene, monoterpenoid region. The sesquiterpene, sesquiterpenoid region is way more complicated. Um, and like, I'm, like I said, scatol kind of eludes very close to there. And so that's why on the 1D side, it'll be more complicated. Whereas in 2D, because we can kind of separate based on polarity, indole is much more polar than the sesquiterpenes that it's near. And so, mm. you know, in that second dimension, we can pull them apart easily. Um, but again, I, I do... I. You know, I'm not giving up yet. I have, I, I, 
know, to me, this is just yet another challenge that we just need to overcome and figure out. And so, you know, that's kind of Twinkle's, um, you know, Twinkle's goal right now. And so, uh, yeah, we'll see what, what happens. I'm, I'm really hopeful though. Nice. So, so this, this sesquiterpene region is in general, um, these molecules have more atoms in them. They're bigger molecules than, than monoterpenes. Or... Yeah. So no, that's exactly it. Yeah. The number of carbons is different essentially. And so all sesquiterpenes have the same chemical formula, which I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's, it's like, it's like C15 H30 or something. Mm-hmm. Don't quote me on that, but it's, it's around there. Um, but the only difference is that kind of how the atoms are arranged in space and connected is what makes them slightly different. And so, you know, caryophylline will have a slightly different structure than um, humulene or, you know, the selenodiene that people have talked about, 3711 selenodiene is another really high concentration sesquiterpenoid that nobody has a standard for, which is pretty funny. Um, and so I will mention that figuring out the chemistry in an accurate way um, through validation using standards is another key goal of ours within the sesquiterpene sesquiterpenoid region because there's a lot of unknowns there and you know you can use mass spec to try to id them coupled with retention indices which is essentially kind of like a linear scale of how compounds kind of uh, will elute based on the column that you have Um, but the truth is is that a lot of the mass specs for sesquiterpenoids and sesquiterpenes are incredibly similar Um, and it makes sense you know your your chemical functionality is pretty, pretty similar for them oftentimes. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a lot of, I think there's a few people who are doing untargeted analysis where basically, uh, they'll include some of those compounds that they see and, you know, maybe on a COA or something in their analyses. Um, but you know, unless, until we have standards for all of these compounds, I don't have full kind of, um, proof or, you know, confidence that all of these are ID'd correctly, even ourselves, you know, we, we have basically a tentative assignment for a lot of these, you know, some of them would, would be higher sort of, uh, you know, um, confidence in, but others would be lower just due to the complexity of the data. Um, so that's something else we're doing totally unrelated to kind of, you know, the, the minor compounds, but, uh, that is definitely an avenue of future research that we're interested in. It's, uh, interesting. Uh, so, okay. So we, we went pretty deep down the technical rabbit hole there. Let's, let's, uh, bring it back to, uh, to entry level. Uh, and let me ask you what, what is your vision or hope for how your research eventually translates to consumers and packaging? Do you see a, a place, a path for your findings to improve the consumer experience, the dispensary experience, which in many ways needs a lot of improvement, uh, the problem of potency inflation and tack chasing. Do, 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 you, do you have a thought? Yeah, I, I I definitely think that this information in the future could benefit the consumers, you know, just as much as, you know, the breeders and whatnot, um, trying to maybe maximize some of these compounds. Um, so packaging, you mentioned that. I think that it could be very beneficial to have some of these compounds uh, 
represented by maybe a score or something like that on the packaging to tell the consumer, hey, this has, you know, a gas factor or some numerical value related to the concentration of the prenylated um, compounds that, you know, the gassy compounds, zero to 100, right? You know, so if somebody really enjoys that, that aroma, and, you know, maybe that, that aroma uh, kind of scales with their or correlates with their user experience and that could be pretty helpful and so it's like hey if it's over a 90 then yeah you would purchase that over something next to it that has a 55 or something like that um so i do think that because these aromas are some of the most desired aromas in cannabis yes product labeling would benefit greatly if we could get it on there um, from the dispensary standpoint i think it would be equally useful because First off, you know, you'd be educating bud tenders, hopefully, right? Because, you know, hey, there's all these new labeling on these packaging that that we're, uh, people are creating. Um, now we can actually educate the bud tenders, be like, this is what this means. And, hey, they could do a whole, whole course, I'm sure, where they do a little, small little sensory study where it's like, this is that aroma we're talking about when we say gassy. Or this is this tangy aroma when we talk about tangy, right? Because um, I know some people... You know, some people for a while were calling terpenaline rich strains gassy, which I was kind of thought was interesting. Um, Backwards. <laughs> yeah, because in, in at least in California, everybody calls something that's super gas, uh, you know, something that's very high in VSCs that we, you know, we've measured hundreds of samples and it scales really, really well with that. Yeah, but that's, right, but exactly. That's, and that's, the, but that's the sort of education that we could be given bud tenders now, you know, and then they could educate the consumers. And so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of opportunities to improve um, the consumer experience and really kind of educate them on what what do they like, right? You know, an example of how terpenes are actually potentially misleading people is the idea that limonene dictates the citrus character in cannabis. Um, and what we found in our study is that that's actually not true at all, that we can have something <laughs> that's extremely, extremely sweet. Um, so in our study, grape pie dosi cross dosi dough was rated as the most sweet exotic variety. And um, so, and that's limonene rich. And then, but on the polar opposite was GMO, which was rated as the most savory variety. So totally polar opposite aroma. And guess what its main terpene was? Limonene. limonene. So what, what's the point if, if, shop, if, shop, if people are shopping based on aroma and trying to use these terpenes as an indicator of aroma, you know, what good is that if you have GMO, which is totally different from grape pie dosi dough, having the top terpene limonene and they think, oh yeah, that's going to have citrus nuance, right? Um, <laughs> Garlic, mushroom, onion, not, <laughs> not, not your first thought. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and so, and, and, you know, that goes into, so, so then what is it, right? Because limonene was actually the least correlated um, dominant terpene to any sort of aroma, uh, you know, that, that we saw, which is interesting because it's such a prominent one that people talk about. So what does make the citrus, right? And so this could be a tangy factor or some sort of citrus factor that actually correlates to those specific notes that people really like or desire, right? Like that tropical oranges that we've you know talked about in the past, Evan, right? Yeah. Um, it literally tastes like an orange. It's it's amazing. You uh, said, but anyway, uh, grapefruit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think some of these can definitely get some grapefruit notes for sure. And again, that goes back to what what are the varying amounts of these com uh, compounds, these volatile sulfur compounds, these tropical ones, um, can kind of give you the different nuance. 
Um, but the point being is that, you know, you, it, our packaging would, would not only be rectifying sort of misconceptions that are already out there, but it would actually be giving you correct information now. And so, you know, the, we have a few of these kind of mapped out in our head that I think would be really helpful. So I'll just, I'll just list them off here because I think this people could be interested in this. So the first one is the gas factor. So this is a zero to 100 score that represents what is the concentration of these compounds that we know contribute to this gassy aroma. The next one would be um, a haze factor. So a lot of people don't like terpenoline-rich strains. Those are like jacks and hazes. But what I found is that the folks who do like hazes and you know those sort of terpenoline-rich strains really like them. They love um, a haze. Yeah, and shout out Riley Kirk, you know, Canada Cam, she loves them too. And so um, she mentioned that to me in, in, a, in a discussion we had uh, recently. And so, you know, the haze factor is based actually more on the aromatic chemistry of the terpenes because it is one of the few um, terpenoline rich strains is the one kind of caveat that we have in this paper that, hey, look, we could differentiate these by our noses as well as chemically, they are quite distinct. They have a different sort of subset of specific minor compounds, as well as their terpenes are so different that they are unique. So anyway, we've developed a haze factor. So, you know, for you, Evan, if if you want to try to find something that's like the quintessential jack, you know, we we can actually rate that zero to 100. We then have, which is, you know, the, and all these names are, you know, kind of a work, working names, but we have tangy factor. So this would be taking into account all of these tropical VSCs. And so if somebody's really into those sort of aromas that have these, um, you know, sort of uh, tropical nuances, super heavy citrus, like tangy, guava, you know, papaya, these sort of things, then that would kind of guide them in that way. Um, then ideally, and this would be the more difficult one in a testing lab situation would be a chem factor, right? Which would basically be, what is the concentration of scatol? And Again, scatol, this heterocyclic compound, is the key compound that really drives that super intense. Uh, it like takes gas and makes it even more intense, right? That's why GMO is like an OG on steroids, it seems. Um, and so that would be a really useful metric for people who really enjoy those sort of varieties, chem varieties, GMO, those sort of things. Um, and so, you know, those are those are some examples of some really useful you know, simple to understand zero to 100 scores that people could now purchase on that is based on actual relevant chemistry. That that sounds fantastic. You know, actionable insight uh, is is a distinct missing factor uh, that that people have right now. And uh, the, the faster you can get packaging labeled this way it it doesn't sound like it's going to take too much to to educate on this point uh i think most consumers that are trying to shop around aroma uh will probably understand uh gassy citrus hazy yeah candy. exactly yeah and you know the the one we we do have another one which is kind of sweet which is kind of generic right because there's a lot of different nuance to what sweet is you could have more fruity leaning or you can have more kind of candy you can have more specific fruits you can have these you know there's apple varieties out there and i'll mention that this is by far um the most difficult to really hone in okay we know it's sweet based on the sensory now what 
what subset of sweet is this? Is this grape sweet? Is this apple sweet? And um, that's where it gets more more tricky because now you're looking at the convolution of all these different aromas coming together to create these really specific sort of aromas. And so that's a next step where, you know, we, we do have this exotic factor that's just kind of a generic, how, how sweet is this, right? But we'd really like to dial it in where we can say like, hey, this is, this is really sweet, but it has a lot of these so-and-so nuances. And, you know, I think that would be a really important, um, you know, kind of from a analytical standpoint would be a really nice paper and, and, and study to hone in what is the exact chemistry of to make grape and is it consistent? Are there different permutations of these compounds to make grape, uh, you know, with that sort of thing. So there's a lot of work still be still to be done, but, um, you know, we definitely, we're definitely working on it. So that's a perfect cue up for my next question. Um, so can you tell us about some of your future research plans and what's coming up next? And, you know, as you were talking, I'm kind of curious if you have any interest in taking some of this research and applying it more to the medical side, like kind of seeing like why certain things are working better for medical patients than others. Like, have you thought about that at all? Yeah. So, so future work, I'll, I'll start with the aromatic chemistry side um, and then get into the more, I wouldn't say more interesting, but I think it is more interesting to a lot of people, which is the medical stuff. Um, and so we, we do have a, another paper that should be out within like the next six months, hopefully um, that Twinkle, like I said, an R and D chemist here at uh, abstracts is working on. And it's, it's really cool. It's kind of like a follow-up to this one where it kind of validates a lot of what we see where, um, you know, chirpings, again, they, they can look very, very similar, but if the nuance and the minor chirpings are different, uh, then you can get these, you know, pretty different sort of aromas. And so uh, that should be pretty cool because there's some new chemistry that we're going to be reporting in that paper uh, for specific aromas that we didn't discuss in the paper that I, I just published. Um, we're also doing a little bit of work on kind of extracts and flour and, you know, how a, how does the sensory perception change if you have the same variety as a flower, as a, a, and a, you know, live resin versus a rosin or something like that. Right. Um, because, you know, that, that's a comment that a few people have had, which is like, well, you're looking at rosin, it's not flower. And that's entirely true. Now I'll mention from the, from the chemistry perspective, we actually did uh, measure, um, it was the starburst sample, starburst 36, number one, we had that in flower form and rosin form. And we didn't put it in the paper. I kind of wish I did now because people brought this up so much, but we had the flower sample next to the rosin sample. And if you look at the, uh, the chemistry, they look very, very similar. The terpene profiles are incredibly similar, minimal changes. And, you know, I think people overestimate how things might change if you process ice hash rosin the right way. Um, and again, you know, not everybody does that. So there could be bigger differences, right? But in the instance we had it, the aromatic profile of the flower and the rosin was very similar. Um, so looking into that, like, um, you know, does the sensory perception change as a function of, of product state? And I think that would be really enlightening to see just like how, how people kind of interpret the aromas of, of them. Um, and then uh, you mentioned the medical stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of really cool studies I think that could come out of this. Um, I'll mention a few that we're at least interested in um, just due to, you know, doing literature searching and looking for precedents with, within the known, the known literature. And so one of those is related to these two new compounds, indol and scatol. Um, and so 
these compounds and indole in particular is basically the core functional group of uh, all or many, many uh, biologically important compounds such as melatonin and tryptophan. So if you go look at that structure, uh, you'll see there's an in indole core structure within those two compounds. Um, but also interesting is those that structure is also in psychedelic drugs. It's in LSD, it's in DMT, psilocybin, all those sort of tryptamines. Indole is in there. Um, and so when I was doing some literature searching, what I happened upon is there's a paper that uh, talks about a compound that's fairly similar to in, uh, indole and scatol and its structure. Basically, it's two scatol molecules. So you have this methyl group coming off of scatol. And if you kind of fused two scatol molecules together through that, what you get is this compound called 3,3-diindolylmethane, uh, which is abbreviated to DIM, D-I-M. Um, and when I found this compound, it was, you know, it was an interesting looking compound. A, because it's related to some of the chemistry we just found in cannabis, but much more interesting was the fact that this DIM compound is a CB1 or 2, I can't remember, it might be both, agonist. So that to me caught my eye because here we have a compound that's fairly similar to the compounds we discovered in cannabis. And it actually has some sort of biological functionality at and, and, and you know at the CB receptor, right? Which is what everybody's interested in in relationship to the ECS, right? The endocannabinoid system. And so, you know, that makes us just start to wonder, well, could indole and scatol themselves you know, have some sort of functionality there, whether it's like an allosteric binding to the CB receptors or an actual, you know, just an acts as an agonist, all those sort of things. And so, um, yeah, I, I think from the medical or at least kind of like biological standpoint, there's definitely some interesting questions that we can uh, that we can kind of try try to answer now, or at least see what's going on. Um, another interesting thing I'll mention is that if you look at the core structure of many of the synthetic cannabinoids that are not based on the THC um, structure, guess what functional group is in those? It is indol. So a lot of those, I think it was in like spice and K2, those sort of things. I, I can't remember exactly. Uh, they have these strange abbreviations, but um, the point being is they also have this functional group. So, you know, there's, it's, it's interesting that we're seeing kind of a commonality between these two things that cannabis is making and then things that have activity with the CB receptors. So I think that's pretty cool. And one last thing I'll just mention that's more anecdotal than kind of hard science, but I think it would be a really interesting study to try to do kind of from a consumer perspective, which is, um, you know, a, a lot of the varieties that contain scatol, I feel are ones that would be considered more like couch lock or more, you know, quote unquote, indica leaning as far as their effects go, more sedative. And so I think that's also very interesting that you have things like GMO and then the chem varieties, which are like notorious for being like, just put you on your butt on the couch. You know, well, what's what's one of the main commonalities there? And it is it is this scatol compound. And, you know, the, the truth is all the terpenes are in all the other cannabis strains. So why they why don't they all make you couch lock? Right. Um, but the one difference here or the one of the main differences is definitely the scatol compound. And so I do think from kind of the quote unquote entourage effect there could be some actual interesting chemistry related there. And so that kind of all ties together with, is there biological activity? And if there is, you know, what is going on? I want to stay there for a minute. You, you talked about 
you know, this indole uh, structure is is at the core of all these tryptamines also. And there's biological activity. And yeah, there's activity at, at, at CB1, but it seems like there must be serotonergic activity too. Yeah. Because that's mm-hmm. the primary target that you think about for these tryptamine compounds mostly. And um, in particular, you know, if we talk about DMT, that has effects that, you know, on a broad scale could probably be compared to couch lock too, right? Like that's not (laughs) what you're talking about when you're taking DMT. You're talking about, you know, hallucinations, but like, most people do not move much. Yeah. When... So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is very true. It is. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's a great point. Um, so, so I, I'm going to go back to something you said. So you're right that the, you know, these psychedelic tryptamines. Yeah. I mean, their action is on, I think like the five HT type receptors. Right. I think that's the right. So five HT is the mm-hmm. serotonin system. Yeah. And right. I think there's, 14 different major serotonin receptors. And then there's a bunch of subclasses of all of them. And the primary psychedelic receptor is 5-HT2A. Okay. That's interesting. So I will say, you know, I'm not as well versed within that sort of chemistry related to the psychedelics as I am, you know, the CB receptor stuff. Uh, But it's so funny you bring this up because um, one of the uh, factoids or one of the papers I was going to talk about actually discusses positive allosteric modulation of the 5-HT, 5-HT1A receptor by indole-based synthetic cannabinoids. <laughs> so uh, That's pretty specific, huh? Yeah. So that's, I don't know, that's pretty cool that there's something going on there. And yeah, this is another thing to think about, I guess, you know, y'all should, if we're doing this, you know, the chem- the, the research into this, these sort of compounds is you can, you know, we can try to model or kind of, um, monitor like you're saying like the cb receptor activity but hey what if what if you're right and there is the activity somewhere else that is inducing this sort of effect that might be specific to these varieties right and there's a lot of variables there or a lot of sort of um areas that if if you want to kind of figure it out you have to be diligent about checking all of them right um and so that i mean i think that's a great point and something that you know, I'll mention at abstracts, this is something we're definitely interested in is kind of more on the kind of the biochemistry side of things. How do these compounds interact with the body? Um, And so, you know, you can, you can do that sort of thing computationally. So we've done some very early studies looking at molecular docking simulations, which is essentially where you take um, the crystal structure, uh, if it's known of one of these receptors. So, you know, CB1 or the CB2, or hey, now that we talk, we're talking about the serotonergic um, receptors, you know, the 5-HT receptors, those would be equally as interesting to look into. Um, but you can take that crystal structure and you can take um, your compound you're interested in. So we could take indole or scatol, and you could try to bind that to some of the different sites that that receptor has. So that could be at the primary binding site. It could be an allosteric site. Um, and so from there, we can basically screen okay, is there any sort of interaction, at least from a computational chemistry standpoint? And then you can go to the next step, which is you, uh, molecular dynamic simulations, which 
basically you take the snapshot of the molecular docking configuration uh, where that compound is sitting within that compound or within the the um, the receptor and then you jiggle it you let it relax basically to see okay is this a false positive or is there actually a real binding affinity for this compound at this site and so that's something we're very very early on in here at abstracts because you know we're not we're not a biotech com company but you know I, i'm i'm of the opinion that you know uh if you can get educated on all these different topics it'll only make you know make it easier for you to kind of understand all of these different and interesting questions that we have so it's something we're kind of doing slowly but surely so uh you know if we get some positive results there uh you know at that at that point we might reach out to a university or something to kind of validate so uh, it's really interesting i think the 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 whole conversation around receptors and, and binding targets it, it's uh it's fascinating. And I think it's not really fair that it's described as like lock and key, right? You you even said it, uh, allosteric binding sites, right? Uh, receptors are more like cargo pants than than <laughs> locks, right? They they've got all these other pockets and depending on what's in them, they, they can behave a little bit differently. So. Yeah. Yeah. And even in the drug design world, you know, there's, there's kind of a shift towards the, that concept of like, okay, well, if we can't easily target the primary binding site, can we target an allosteric site, you know, and focus more on that, which basically kind of changes maybe the configuration of the binding site to then allow something to more easily fit into there. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, and I'll mention like the indol and scatol stuff, you know, we, we, we see some negative binding energies, which means that it is potentially a preferred, you know, um, net loss in energy. So it's a stable configuration, essentially, relative to um, if you have a positive binding energy, then it says, yeah, it, it won't go here. So I think I do think that, you know, it's promising, but a lot of work still to be done. Is that why some of these compounds are um or, or their effects last long periods of time or very short periods of time yeah i mean I, I i definitely would think so that you know the basically what is that energy right it how 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 low of an energy do you drop the configuration and if it's a really large drop which is basically a strong interaction then it would make sense that it might want to stay there a little bit longer than others um and so, you know, and that's when you get into, well, if you have a bunch of stuff competing for a specific site, typically something that I think has, you know, this is probably an oversimplified view, but, you know, if something has something with the lowest kind of energetic state in that binding site would probably uh, preferentially sit there over others. Um, but, hey, you know, then there's kinetics and all other kinds of things, right, related to that. So it's a it's a complicated question, but um Hey, you know, if we can get some sort of precedence on the computational side, because that doesn't require, you know, rats or cells in a petri dish, right? It just requires a computer that's powerful enough to do the calculations. Um, then, uh, you know, if we can get some positive results, I think then we can take that next step to do those, you know, those sort of experiments. Very cool. So, kind of changing tracks a little bit. Um, We've had A.D. Ray and Nick Jacombs on as podcast guests earlier this year discussing work very related to yours. How do you see all of your research tying together and what might that lead to in the industry down the road? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's great that um, within a few years, these three papers kind of came out one by one. And it's great because I think a lot of it is sort of self-validating between them. So I think Nick's paper was first. And really what Nick's paper showed is that, first off, he was sampling like 10,000 different uh, you know, data points of, of chemistry at testing labs across the U.S. And one of the major takeaways was, is like, hey, strain names on packaging doesn't mean a whole lot in many, many cases. Um, and he kind of showed that cannabis across the U.S. more or less falls into three large groupings, at least using the uh, the terpene information that is provided to them from the testing labs, which is, you know, maybe the top 18 or so usually. Um, and then Addy's paper came out and what it kind of showed is that, uh, well, it showed a bunch of different things, but one of the cool conclusions they kind of reached was that you know, the terpenes that people oftentimes talk about, there wasn't a whole lot of correlation there between like user preference and that sort of thing. Um, and, and really her paper kind of is seminal because it kind of shows that, you know, the and, and the title is the nose nose. And really what it's saying is that these analytics that we're going off of at testing labs, whether for THC or for terpenes, don't necessarily correlate with how the user experience goes, right? Um, and so, you know, her paper is basically saying that, kind of what ours does, which is chirping testing is not nearly as useful, I think, as people might make it out to be. Um, and then our paper kind of validates, I feel, what these two in the past were showing that, you know, in, in Nick's paper, he shows all these different varieties that are kind of in the same cluster, you know, this limonene cluster, for instance. And in, in his paper, you know, he shows, um, you know, it was like dog walker OG was in the same class as, um, what was it? It was like, uh, purple punch, I think, which totally different aromas. Those there, are right? very different. <laughs> very different. Yeah, yeah. One one is very sweet, exotic uh, purple punch, and then you know, dog walkers maybe more prototypical, slightly savory. Um, and, and so I think I think what what's cool about Nick's paper is that basically he's showing is that if if you're only taking into account these dominant terpenes, sure you can build these models and these chemometric sort of groupings, but is that really relevant? if you're grouping things that are completely different from an aromatic perspective into the same group. And so I think what is end up, what's going to, and, and I think what's cool about our paper is it kind of mesh meshes both of theirs together because we did the sensory analysis and then coupled it to this deep uh, chemical analysis. We're able to kind of like elucidate, well, what actually does make some of these things smell different. And so I think honestly, like these three papers could end up being kind of like, uh, you know, the, the beginning of kind of a new understanding or kind of like uh, a, a new way of thinking about, well, how should we be doing this? Because again, like it's almost like a ph philosophical question. What's the point of chemotyping or building these classification schemes if you have completely different varieties that are aromatically different, right? Um, and so I think that using kind of statistical and advanced techniques that Nick used on our data set and a larger data set once it grows, right? coupled with the sensory analysis that like Addy kind of showed, then we're going to be able to build better models and really extract out, well, what are the most important compounds that a certain type of person really likes? Um, and so, you know, we're, we're working on sensory, building out a really robust sensory panel right now. Uh, I have some really cool stuff in the works there. I'm going to have to show you for sure, Evan, <laughs> down the road. Um, but uh, I think that, I think that the ground is now set with these three papers to really take the industry in a direction that's really based on science and science that people will care about.
You're talking about personalized weed. Yeah, more or less, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Forget personalized healthcare. <laughs> um, no, that's that's really cool. And um I you you were talking about earlier with um the the one grouping of, of cannabis varietals that that you kind of can determine by terpenes are the the jacks the hazes the durban poisons those terpinaline strains and the way the data clustered uh in nick's analysis the way he showed it in that paper was was fascinating and and uh supports exactly what you're saying right like the most of what we commonly call sativas and indicas they all kind of grouped together yeah there was some division it was a big blob that that maybe had two lobes to it but then the the terpinaline strains they all clustered completely separately uh yeah, exactly. which yeah. which is suggestive of so many things not not the least of which is perhaps they actually had a unique and distinctly different ancestor than most modern cannabinoid cannabis. Yeah, entirely. And, and, you know, Meg, you asked about future research, and I think this could be a really fascinating one, which is kind of delineating kind of, well, when did these minor compounds pop up? Right. Um, and so like going back to, to, you know, what you're talking about, Evan, is, yeah, I mean, Nick's paper showed it clearly. And, you know, there were a few other chemotyping, chemotaxonomic papers previously, I think Ethan Russo had published one, that kind of showed similar classifications that Nick does, right, where you often have basically this, you know, this high terpinaline cluster is, you know, statistically different from kind of everything else that might, might more or less kind of kind of meld together. Um and, and exactly, like you said, we found something similar where, you know, we only had one sample because not a lot of people make terpinaline rich uh, hazes, which, you know, that in itself is interesting. You know, hazes don't wash is what I've heard, right? So you're not going to find as many on the market. And also, I don't think people... Well, I think Sativas just, don't wash, right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I so there's, you know, the manufacturing issue as well as the fact that, you know, I, I do think in general, there's less people who are looking for those sort of varieties. Um, but but you're right that our paper basically kind of validated that, that even when you look at the minor compounds, that is still the terpinaline rich varieties are unique. So when we say like terpenes are, you know, don't discriminate stuff very well, that's the one caveat, right? That they terpinaline, uh, ter terpinaline rich varieties do just um, are chemically distinct enough that we can detect them with the nose very easily to be different as well as, uh, you know, statistically we can on the analytic side. Um, but something I want to mention because, uh, and this wasn't in our paper, but it's a sample we'd run a long time ago. And it, it might kind of go against the grain of what I just said. Uh, and, and, you know, more, we would just require more samples to measure to validate this. But I remember a long time ago getting a variety that was basically smelled like a tangy right? Super intense citrus notes. And it was terpinaline rich. So there are terpinaline rich varieties out there that can have these tropical, tropicana sulfur compounds, these, you know, really potent citrus compounds. And I distinctly remember thinking, oh yeah, that's a tangy, but then it's terpinaline rich. So, you know, 
um, it didn't really have necessarily that Jack aroma that so many of those terpenely rich varieties have. It was really interesting. And so again, I think that's important for two reasons. One, it muddies the water if if you have the right compounds that are really potent in the terpenely rich strains, can it drive that aroma to be a tangy versus by the dominant terpene, right? And then the other thing is, um, you know, does the do these compounds they can basically overpower that haze aroma that kind of comes through so often, right? Um, and so something I just want to mention in Nick's paper, I distinctly remember during the El Soli Awards when we both won them, he pointed out that I think it was, I, I'm pretty sure it was sour tangy actually. Was it specifically like a, a tangy strain? He called out was all over the place within the different clusters. It was in the terpenaline rich, it was in the limonene rich, and it was in the beta myrcene rich. Um, well, guess what? If what makes a tangy are those low concentration compounds and they overpower the terpene, dominant terpene, it would make sense that somebody would label it a tangy of some kind. And so it would make sense that that one would be kind of populated throughout the different clusters because you're not, you're, it's kind of taking away the importance of what is that dominant terpene profile. And it's just, hey, this thing is super heavy citrus. Um, and so even with the terpenaline rich stuff, Evan, I do think that there's going to be caveats where if you have the right combination or concentration of these really potent low concentration compounds, it might kind of drive that hazy aroma to be more like just smelling like all the other tangies that are out there, just with maybe a slightly different nuance. So, uh, and the, I, there's been a lot of information that's gone on here. Um, compound names and everything, but so the, these Tropicana compounds that you're talking about, these are the three Mercaptos. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, and they're sulfur compounds. Yes. And then the terpenaline is a, is a terpene is a monoterpene is a sesquiterpene monoterpene. Yeah. Okay. And then the the compounds that drive the chemi flavors chem dog gorilla glue um the ones that smell like melting electronics that's right. scatol which is an indole type compound and this might be driving uh couch lock potentially yeah potentially with activity at serotonin series receptors not endocannabinoid receptors or in addition to endocannabinoid receptors potentially yeah i mean all of this would have to be validated but i mean it's a great excuse to go do that modeling yeah right i'm just trying to line it all up yeah mm -hmm. um, yeah you got it right <laughs> um so my my question here is, where do you hope to see the cannabis industry in the next five years? And what will it take us to get there? But is, I mean, is five years enough time? Is, is what, what, what is your hope for mid-stage cannabis industry? Because I think everybody's like, uh, you know, developed or whatever. That's, that's a hundred years out probably because right. there is just this is slow moving and there is such a 
distinct lack of foundational research like what you're producing um uh, where, where where do you hope we're going and how long do you think it takes us to get there yeah so i'll start with the um you know kind of the consumer facing side and that that would go back to like packaging and that sort of thing so i want to make an analogy to the wine industry um and i think people do this pretty frequently but I'm I'm not a sommelier at all, um, but I do like to read the descriptions of what a certain wine might be. But you know what I really <laughs> pay attention to the most is if the James Suckling score is like over 90. And maybe I'm just naive and I shouldn't be doing that and I'm missing out on a lot of stuff. But that drives my purchasing decisions a lot if I'm trying to buy wine. And I think in the cannabis industry with these different you know, chemistries that we've discovered, we could give some sort of quality metric, um, overall metric if we wanted to, but at least metric specific to, to different nuances that we've discussed. And so I think that would be a huge, I, at least if I was purchasing something within the cannabis industry, I would like to buy based on numbers. You know, I'm, I'm a data-driven guy where I like to see, well, what is the score of that? You know, and then it would be interesting because I feel like a lot of people, if there was numerical values there that really relate to the true chemistry that's there, um, they might want to buy something that's like a 90 for the tangy and then a zero to compare and be like, well, what is the difference here? Right. And so I, I think that if we could get the packaging on the consumer facing side to have useful information, I could, I could envision uh, the purchasing decisions would be easier, more informed. As well as, you know, I think it would elevate the better products much more easily than what it is now. Like, I mean, how, how do you guys say what is better? The, the package looks nicer, right? It's not easy. <laughs> it's really hard to say right now. Well, really what hard. Is, what is better? And so I think if we can kind of take that route, like I said, kind of like what wine does and, you know, beer does it to some extent too, where, you know, you have a validated score, you know, by either, you know, an expert would be in, in wine, but, um, but like by the numerical values for these aromas that are so, so key for people, then I think that would be really, really beneficial, especially for the best uh, cultivators and breeders out there. Right. Um, how long would that take? I mean, you'd have to get a lot of adoption, right. And, and here's the other thing, you know, as much as people might not, you know, cultivators or companies might not want to hear it, not everything that they produce might be quote unquote fire. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so do you want to put that number on there? Right. And so now are you just hiding the fact that this is crappy weed? Um, so stuff like that. Right. I mean, there's a lot, you'd have to get buy-in from the industry, but I, I think it would be easier to get buy-in from the, the produce, you know, the, the producers that are confident in their product um, to highlight like, yeah, this is why you want to buy this. This is, this has a 97 gas factor. Right. Um, that would be, I, I really think people would, would appreciate that a lot. Well, I, I, I don't disagree, but, uh, let me, let me throw a wrench into the works, uh, and see how you handle that. Um, these, uh, these very high vapor pressure, ultra volatile sulfur compounds that, uh, people are really looking for uh they dissipate really quickly you know you put wine in a bottle you could store that <laughs> under the right conditions for many years it potentially gets better 
Um, what is there storage methodology to protect these compounds? What is the shelf life for yeah. that gas factor ninety seven? And this is, and and you're right. So this is the the truth is the cannabis plant is dynamic in the sense that you know you take that snapshot at its highest point in time, it's only going to go down from there for the this chemistry, at least that I'm aware of. <laughs> If you're aware of anything otherwise, let me know, Evan. Um, but that is something that we have definitely taken into account and thought about. So really, and, and so I guess I got to say, if this were to be adopted, you know, this there's, a, there's another study that needs to be done. And that is, what is the time dependence of these key compounds over time, Right. Because as you said, a lot of these aromas or compounds, they either evaporate or they might get oxidized or some, you know, something happens to them and six months later, it's just not the same. Understanding how that happens, uh, not only by time, but also by humidity and then by packaging type. I'll tell you one thing, um, if you use zipper storage bags, just like Ziplocs, by far the worst thing you can possibly use. Do not use those if you care about retaining the aromatic quality of your product. We've done tiny internal studies on that, um, but it, so 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 to your point that you know the snapshot at the beginning that's great right, um, but oftentimes it takes a month, two months, and if you know you're really unlucky, three months for something to get cut off the off the stock, cured, and then packaged, and then into a store. So that's a lot of time. And so we are going to be doing a packaging study that looks specifically at the sort of uh, chemistry and kind of kinetics, right? How do things change over time? And this is kind of the final key part of the puzzle. I think that if we're talking about how to inform consumers is adding this time dependence. And so what I envision is this, that starting point, that 97 gas factor that you get, right? If, if, if you want that high value, then obviously getting it in your hands quicker is better than later. But if you can't, or it takes time to get to the store, what is the rate of dissipation over time for you know X type of packaging? Well, we can do these studies and we can build models to kind of estimate what is the rate of decline, right? Is it linear? Is it exponential, right? Is it you know, first order, that sort of thing? And with those models, what we could do is basically if, uh, and, let, and let me go back. So the reason I brought up the 97, that, that initial starting point will kind of dictate more or less three months later, what will be, be the value? So 97, 97 gas factor after three months might be down to a 50. Whereas if you started at 80, might drop down to a 20. Does that make sense? So it's like your starting point kind of will set the bar for, and this is based on small internal studies we've done already, um, for what will the product be like two months down the road or whatever it is. And so anyway, once we build these models, we can essentially kind of uh, not only when we know the starting point, but we can, can kind of predict, well, what is what is that actual gassiness going to be at a later point in time? And that's the value, you know, that would be more relevant and more useful to the consumers, obviously, right? Because they're purchasing it X days after packaging, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think that that's really interesting, you know. Uh, it's and you see it in in beer. You don't see it in wine, 
but or or liquor but you see it in beer right you go and you buy uh an ipa and uh you want to consume it within 30 to 60 days maximum of the date stamped on the bottom of the can yeah and and it's kind of, it's kind of funny with beer too cuz we 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 have a hops division now and so we we've worked with a few brewers and you know talking to them is really interesting learning more about it and actually beer is kind of unique because sometimes they will say that after it's canned something happens you know a little bit of chemistry might happen and they they'll actually they'll say the flavor uh profile will be optimal after 7 days versus right after canning which i think is really cool um but in cannabis you know we we don't see any evidence of that sort of you know, where, where you can actually increase in quality. Although, you know, I think I've heard people say that, you know, but I haven't seen it enough to really, I'd love to validate if that's true, right. You know, that a product actually gets better after a certain amount of time after packaging. Um, but yeah, I mean, to your point, you know, an expiration date that is relevant versus the year long expiration date that it is right now could be really, really important. And, you know, I mean, just, thinking about it off the top of my head, you know, you could have a QR code where they could scan it and, you know, we can have a, a formula where, okay, yeah, this product was a 97 and you're at 30 days out. So now it's a 65, right. And it can tell you kind of like, what is the estimated gassiness, something like that. Um, and so that, yeah, there, there's a lot of nuance there as far as kind of like these quality metrics um, that, that are related to time, obviously. Right. And so, Working that sort of thing out is definitely, I think, the next step. Um, and if we do that, I mean, if we kind of have like a dynamic calculator for telling you based on these models what the quality of it will be, and it's, you know, fairly robust and accurate. I mean, I don't think that the wine or the the brewing industry really have that at all, where they've tracked it, you know, both on a sensory side. I'm sure the beer industry has, to be honest, I just haven't seen it. Um, but I think that, you know, that would be a really cool study as well as, you know, relevant for for folks and uh, you know consumers, yeah, sounds like a high impact paper to me. Definitely, and and you know the problem is there's other variables I I meant I didn't mention right. So we I mentioned different packaging types, um, I mentioned um, humidity, uh, but then then there's temperature, right? Then there's, I mean, if you think about it, there's pressure. If you're in Denver, the atmospheric pressure is def different if you're in Southern California, right? Um, and so there's a lot of variables that when we do this, we're going to have to control and limit ourselves to because you'll explode out of control of the amount of data points that you need to collect if you try to measure every single thing. And then the other thing is, what if bud structure, this is a question I have, what if bud structure affects the retention of some of these compounds? Like what if a really tight nug might, for whatever reason, because it's kind of more dense on the middle, might not release these compounds as much as a really fluffy one like an OG? And so that's another variable, like how does the actual sort of cultivar or the morphology of the plant itself affect this? And so, you know, this, this study could get out of control really quickly <laughs> because there's a lot of interesting questions to answer. You, you know, yeah, yeah. You, you asked a really interesting question there, right? Uh, and I'm back at these terpenaline rich strains, which are you know, sativa morphologically, mostly. And so is it that they do have some of these sulfur compounds, but because the, the bud structure is so loose and 
and diffuse it can't keep it in at all and so by the time it ever gets to to you to be testing or it's uh so uh, all I mean, of I that's comment, dissipated yeah i can comment on that a little bit so the first thing is we've measured you know hundreds of terpenaline rich varieties and we have never seen any of the prenylated VSCs, the gassy VSCs, and and hard and hardly any of them. I don't think any of the flower samples actually. And so I kind of find it hard to believe that out of these hundreds of samples, it's just a matter of you know we didn't get them in time, sort of thing. Um, but what I'll mention to kind of I feel like that kind of solidifies that there is just a genetic difference between these sativas than everything else, or sorry, these terpenoline rich varieties and everything else, is the fact that. Um, the train wreck sample, which is terpenaline rich that we measured in this more recent paper, it actually had the tiniest amount of prenylthiol. It was by far the lowest amount out of all the samples. And remember, that's ice water hash. So that means it's being cut off the stock. So yeah. that whole fresh, dissipation, fresh. exactly, that dissipation question, I feel like, you know, we, we validate that, okay, there actually might be some at some, you know, in, in these terpenaline rich flower samples, but they're so low our detection limits can't hit them, even though we're detecting super low concentrations. But when you concentrate it into hash form, which it's easier to see these low concentration compounds, we could see the tiniest amount. So I actually do think that there's probably just a genetic difference between, like you said, these sativas, these quote unquote sativas that are terpenaline rich versus kind of everything else where there's just not, a, you know, the, the amount of genes or expression of the genes um, is different related to those sort of compounds than others. Fascinating. <laughs> this might be a silly question, but do you think, like going back to the the label ideas you were saying related to wine, do you think like after a certain amount of time it would go all the way down to zero or would it like just be like, let's say it starts at 97 and it drops down to like 50 and then it stays at 50 indefinitely? But, yeah, so um, it, it depends on which of these metrics were talking about but I, I in this context i think we're talking about the gas factor right these are the yeah. the gassy compounds um and so yeah we we've measured flour after you know months and months of time and it does approach pretty close to zero um oh. it, i can't rem i can't remember if they go all the way to zero it's been a long time since we've done so, sort of those long-term storage studies um but it they basically do drop to the point where we can barely see them on the instrument um, but again, you know, our noses are so sensitive. It's not, that's not to say that they're still there. They're just below the sensitivity of what we're, you know, the methods that we're using. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so to kind of close out the episode, we like to ask people, what are three books, studies, or educational groups that you'd like to recommend to our listeners to expand their cannabis knowledge? Yeah, sure. And, you know, I think this is, um, this is all really kind of pertinent to our discussion, especially the, the the medical aspect, because this is something that, you know, I'm a chemist by training. I'm, I'm not a biochemist or a biologist, what, what have you. Um, but I, you know, working in this industry, especially after these discoveries we've had, I, I've become so much more interested in that. And how do, you know, how do those sort of scientists actually answer questions related to uh, the biological impact of these compounds on the human body? Um, and so the first one I have, it's a, it's a paper published in Nature Chemical Biology. Um, and this is one of the first papers that I saw kind of when I was first delving into the concept of modeling um, you know, interactions between a ligand or, or, you know, some sort of compound with, with a receptor. And the name of the paper is Structure of an Allosteric Modulator Bound to the CB1 Cannabinoid Receptor. Uh, the other reason I really like this paper 
is I used back in grad school, I used to do x-ray crystallography. And so if you guys aren't familiar, x-ray crystallography is basically, it's the best technique right now to basically figure out where are the atoms in space and what is the true absolute configuration of them uh, and what is their like kind of definitive proof of what their chemical structure is. And so I have a lot of respect for this paper because these guys um, were able to grow crystals of the CB1 receptor, uh, cannabinoid receptor with, you know, this compound bound to it. And so that is protein crystallography is an incredibly complicated and difficult sort of task. And basically anytime somebody can grow a crystal of a, a new protein, it gets into nature or science, you know, one of the top journals in the world because it's so difficult. Um, but this is really neat because this is kind of what sent me down the rabbit hole of how can you, from a scientific perspective, validate, you know, how things um, behave uh, related to these receptors. And so I highly recommend it. it it's obviously very technical, um, but if, if you are a scientist in particular and you're interested in kind of like I was into understanding the sort of science, it, it's, it's a great paper and it's, it's been cited, you know, a decent amount of time since then. Um, the next one, uh, I think is really cool because it's related to some of the work that we've done, which is, it's called design synthesis and structure activity relationships of diindolyl methane derivatives as cannabinoid CB2 receptor agonists. And so this is the compound DIM um, and derivatives that they're synthesizing um, that is related to indole and scatol in structure. And basically these uh, DIM derivatives and their, uh, you know, how does changing their chemical functionality affect the cannabinoid CB2 um, properties, right? They're the receptor binding properties. And so they go through and they synthesized a ton of different compounds. It's really impressive. Uh, a lot of, a lot of good chemistry in this. Um, and they find that, yeah, if you, you know, if you change the chemistry, then you get different binding uh, efficacy at different, um, you know, sites. So I think that's really cool. And I think it's cool because um, it's related back to the stuff we just did, which is the indole and scatol sort of work. Um, and then, you know, I, I just got to mention, like, the fact that DIM is, a, I'm reading it right here, it's, you know, DIM and its analogs act as allosteric CB2 receptor agonists. Now that makes me wonder, like, you can buy DIM at the store. It's, it's sold as a supplement. DIM is found in cruciferous vegetables like broccoli. Um, so, like, what if you smoke some weed and you, you know, take, take your DIM um, supplement? Will that modulate the effects at all, right? I mean, I don't know. It's just so fascinating. You know, when you when you do literature searching and you happen upon these papers that are not necessarily related directly to what you're doing, but they sort of are, you know, it's it just opens up so many more questions. And then the last one, and this is related, Evan, to what we were talking about earlier. And I think something that now that we've kind of discussed it more and, you know, after seeing this paper, you know, that I found the other week, I think really uh, I, I want to kind of expand the modeling that we're going to be doing. And this paper is I read it out earlier, but it's positive allosteric modulation of the 5-HT1A receptor by indole-based synthetic cannabinoids abused by humans. <laughs> like how they throw that in there at the end. <laughs> well, that's how you get NIDA to oh, yeah. pay for it, right? <laughs> yeah, that's how you get your grants, <laughs> yeah, your NIH grants. Um, but anyway, I think this is so fascinating because I'm not going to lie, before I found this paper, I hadn't even really bothered thinking about it. And you know, to your point, you were, you were making this relationship between the indole structure and DMT and, Hey, this doesn't bind to cannabinoids. It binds to the five, you know, the serotonin type receptors. 
But, you know, after seeing this and our discussion here, I mean, I'm much more interested now in, hey, can we do some simple modeling on some of this new chemistry we've discovered to see if uh, maybe maybe you're right. Maybe maybe the effect of these compounds, if any, is not necessarily related to the cannabinoid receptors, or maybe it's a combination of that and the serotonin type receptors. So um, anyway, three papers that I think if, you know, they're, they're all obviously very technical, but, uh, you know, throw that into chat GPT and let it translate it for you. And it'll probably spit it out really nicely. And uh, I think you guys would all really appreciate kind of, you know, where this research we've done could potentially take us. And I think that's the most exciting thing is what's next, because, you know, identifying this chemistry, understanding it from a sensory standpoint is great, but how it, how it plays a part potentially in the entourage effect is really, I mean, that's the Holy grail I feel. Yeah. Definitely. It's so interesting. I, I could ask you a whole bunch of more questions, but, uh, I think we might need to wrap it up here. Yeah, we'll we'll uh I'll I'll be seeing you next year, Evan. So don't worry. <laughs> Plenty of time. Yeah, we'll have to do this again for sure. Um is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, first thing I want to mention is huge thanks to abstracts. I probably haven't mentioned them enough. Um, you know, Max, Kevin, Jack, the leadership team, they're so supportive of the research we're doing. And, you know, obviously it helps our business survive um, and thrive, but, you know, the fact that they're willing to also allow us to publish this publicly, you know, not a lot of people would do that. Um, a lot of people would keep a trade secret or, you know, retain this IP really close to the chest, but they're big proponents of education within this industry and recognizing that it's a huge need. Um, so huge thanks to Abstracts for the financial support um, huge thanks to you guys, obviously, for having me on. Huge thanks to my team. You know, I got to give another shout out to Twinkle. She's done such a great job. Second author on the paper we just published. Manny, uh, he, he did all the chemical synthesis for some of those unknowns that we had to make. And that's a whole other thing that, <laughs> you know, what, what terpene company is synthesizing completely new aroma compounds to validate they're chemically correct on a GC, you know, not a lot. Um, and then, uh, you know, TJ, obviously my boss, you know, he gives me free reign to do whatever I want, which is great. You know, I think that's the best way to let a creative scientist flourish. Um, and then uh, Marcos, you know, Marcos and I were the first two that, uh, you know, when the R&D team was first starting out, we just cranked through hundreds of samples and data points and kind of established kind of, you know, what is the forest and then we could look at the trees, right? um dive into the details so um big thanks to everybody involved and uh, again thanks to you guys for having me on yeah thank you thank you so much for being with today with us today ian uh, we really appreciate all your knowledge and your passion for researching this amazing plant yeah thanks again guys thank you